The following program is produced and distributed by KETR.org. You can help by visiting KETR.org and clicking Donate. There's a reservoir supplying water to the city of Dallas about an hour's drive to the east called Lake Tawakoni. And if you were to drop a pin in the center of its widest point, there's a spot where the lines of three counties intersect, splitting the lake into thirds. What I'm about to tell you mostly happened around a bay on the northwestern third. It's called Waco Bay, just off the southern edge of the small town of Quinlan. That's where I went one muggy afternoon this spring to meet a man named Glenn, who over several hours told me the craziest story I've ever heard in my life. It begins in early 1991, on the other side of the bay, and it's about a young woman who was crashing at a friend's house at the time. She was going through a bad breakup, had just gotten into a fight with her sister, and needed a place to get away for a while. She was also a mother, and two of her three children were staying at her parents' house, only a few minutes' drive across a short bridge. That's the route she was supposed to take one day in March 1991 to get to her son's sixth birthday party, but she never got there, and she hasn't been heard from since. Her name is Carrie Mae Parker. About right here is where my producer might insert some scratchy news archive tape from back then. The voice of a 1990s TV anchor announcing it's been a whole month without answers. How searches are underway and how police are upping the reward for info. Candlelight vigils and all the things you usually hear when someone goes missing. But we couldn't find anything like that. In fact, we couldn't find a single piece of audio anywhere mentioning Carrie Mae Parker's name until right now as you hear these words. And that's weird, because usually when a tall, pretty, blue-eyed woman goes missing in America, people sort of obsess, even more so when she's young, and especially when she's white. And Carrie Mae Parker was all of those things. So I've started to think of her disappearance like an exception that proves the rule. Because hers is a story about what happens when that same woman vanishes from the wrong place. It's about what happens when she's from a poor family in rough neighborhood, when she's got a reputation for sleeping around and using drugs. And it's about what happens when her loved ones turn to the wrong people for help. What happens, it turns out, is nothing. That's what Carrie's family learned nearly two decades later, when they really started demanding answers from the authorities. The discovery was jarring. The law enforcement agency responsible for the area had no record of a case, open or closed. The sheriff didn't know about her. They conducted no searches, didn't question any suspects. They didn't even assign a detective for nearly 20 years. The other day, Carrie's sister told me that the moment she found out there was no missing persons report on file, it was May 15, 2010, that it was the single most shocking moment of her life. Which, I guess, obviously. So, you might expect a discovery like that to shock other people, and maybe inspire a little soul-searching by law enforcement and local government. Because that's probably what would happen in your town an accounting of some sort, to find out how something like this could occur, and how to make sure it never happens again, or at least to make sure there weren't other misplaced cases, other families waiting for answers that are never coming. But that's not what happened here, in Quinlan, or the rest of Hunt County, after Carrie's family started digging. Instead, a different narrative emerged, with help from the sheriff's office and a few others. And it's basically that the Parkers just didn't report Carrie missing, that they kept it to themselves all those years. That too much time passed before they spoke up for anyone to do anything about it now. And if only they'd reported it sooner. And if the family would only cooperate now, 
investigators might be able to help. And, most importantly, that May 15, 2010, was the first time that law enforcement learned about Carrie Mae Parker. None of this is true. From KETR Public Radio in Northeast Texas, this is Buried, a new podcast about the disappearance of Carrie Mae Parker. My name is George Hale, and I've spent the last six months following Carrie's family as they pursue the truth about her disappearance and about some of the people who let it happen. While they searched for answers about what happened to her, I tried to answer a different question, one that I thought might be straightforward, and that's just, how did this happen? How is it even possible for someone with a family and friends and children to disappear and for nobody else to hear about it for two decades. I really wasn't prepared for some of the answers. Here's what to expect from us in this series and over the coming months. We're gonna take a hard look at the way institutions in our corner of the world handle missing persons, how they did it 26 years ago and how they do it now. And we're gonna compare that to what they're supposed to do. And we're gonna find out if those things match. We're also gonna learn about Hunt County's investigation into Carrie Mae Parker's disappearance the one that started in 2010, officially. The one people talk about now when you hear Carrie's name. But we're also going to look into the county's original 1991 investigation, a spectacular failure that nobody talks about today. And we're going to hear from people who believe they know what happened to Carrie. And we're going to travel to places where Carrie went and talk to people who knew her, including her ex-boyfriend and some of his ex-girlfriends and many other people who have never spoken to anyone about any of this before. And in the process, we're going to learn about a judge, and about a constable, and about a father who kept secrets that I couldn't believe at first. But before we do any of those things, we're going to talk to Carrie Mae Parker's family, because that's something that no one, not even the police, really did over the past 26 years. And they've got a lot to say. Around March of 91, me and my wife was going to California to stay for a while. Be with our, my father-in-law. Maybe a job prospect. About two weeks, only off about the middle of the month. Around the 15th or 16th. Glenn Parker is Carrie's only brother. He's the oldest of her three siblings and the one who was around the most in the years since she went missing. Glenn is 52, mostly bald with a gray goatee. He looks pretty good these days, but it's been a long time coming, after more years than not of struggling with drug addiction and the related legal problems. But he's been sober five years and since reconnected with family. The only reason I mention any of this is because Glenn and Carrie were a lot alike, and they hung around the same crowd. Despite this, Glenn says the cops haven't ever questioned him about his sister. I met Glenn at his place because I wanted to see where Carrie grew up. It was hot and muggy, and the air conditioner was blaring. Since it was the only source of ventilation, we decided to leave it on. We've met up since then under much better circumstances, audio-wise. But I want you to hear what I heard the very first time we met, when he was dragging these memories up for the first time in years. And about two weeks before I left, I'd seen my sister up at Easy Mart. And she was crying. So I turned around, pulled in the Easy Mart, and asked her what was going on. And she said her and Cody had gotten a fight. 
and if they were driving down the road about 60 miles an hour, they got in an argument and she kicked out the windshield and cracked the windshield. She said he reached over, opened up the passenger door and tried to shove her out the truck at 60 miles an hour. One of the people Glenn spent time with after Carrie disappeared was Cody, her ex-boyfriend. They hung out, worked together off and on, and even lived next door to each other at one point. But that relationship has soured over the past 26 years. Well, back in the day, I was young. You know how sometimes when we're young with it, oh, it's just a lover's fat. Yeah. It's going to be cool. I didn't really think much of it. I'm kind of wishing maybe I'd done something about it at that time. But, uh, so I went ahead and went to California, and about two and a half weeks later, around the 1st of April, I can't remember the exact date, but they gave me a call, my family did, to California and told me that your sister was missing. You were in California? Yes, me and my wife. And, uh, so shortly after that, I ended up coming back home to find out what's going on. I went and talked to my dad, and my dad said, and she had went to work, it was like on Friday, they were gonna have a little holiday or something, three or four day holiday. And she went to work, it was proven that she went to work, but she never did come back home. Glenn was out of the state when she actually did disappear, but he saw her right before. So his memory provides a useful bookend for what was going on with her at the time. It didn't look good. Uh, Dad was telling me Shortly after we got back from California, that Carrie was kind of nervous about something. He could tell something was wrong. About a week later, Carrie came up gone. Glenn lives off Lakeview Drive, which surrounds a square-shaped development on Lake Tawakonee's Waco Bay, where the Parker family lived on a street called Waco Bay Loop. That street goes southwest to northeast across five block-sized sections of dense forest between them on the eastern side. That'll come up later. Anyway... Two of Carrie's kids were staying at her parents' house on Waco Bay Loop, so she was there a lot. Before she moved in with them, Carrie and Cody were living in a trailer outside of Marina. But they split up in late 1990, and it wasn't a healthy breakup. Cody was recently out of prison, and he discovered she'd been cheating on him. To add insult to injury, it was with a cop. A quick note for the record. Cody has never been charged or even publicly accused of involvement in Carrie's disappearance. He's denied any involvement consistently for the past 26 years. But we're telling you about him anyway for a couple of reasons. The first is that within the last year, a detective from the Hunt County Sheriff's Office traveled outside of Texas to question him about Carrie's disappearance. That's because new evidence has come to light since last year. The Sheriff's Office hasn't announced that development, but I confirmed three different ways that it happened. And one of those ways was by asking Cody himself. And Cody told me that he wants his perspective included in this podcast. So, we're going to hear from him moving forward. The third reason we're mentioning Cody is because Carrie's story would be impossible to tell without talking about him. So, it was a relief when he told me this summer that he supported what we're doing. Finally, I'll tell you the same thing I told him. Buried isn't about Cody, and we aren't trying to prove he did anything. Okay, moving on. I didn't really know um, Carrie's friends, because it was like we totally... We were totally opposites. Um, she was like very, she was angry, very promiscuous, um, just 
All the guys that she knew were into drugs. After Glenn, Carrie's next closest sibling is Patricia, and she doesn't live in Hunt County anymore. In fact, she mostly avoids the area. A few weeks before I spoke to Glenn, I drove down to meet her in Central Texas, where she lives with her husband and a couple of rescue dogs. Patricia's sort of tall, not as tall as Carrie, but there's definitely a resemblance. She has brown hair and a tattoo of a wild cat on one arm. I was living in Houston. The only reason why I came home is because I was in December 1990. I was pregnant with my son. And um, the decision to keep my son is what brought me back home to my dad's. I came home in January 1991, and I was staying with my dad. And then um, my sister was there, too, with, the, with two of the kids, the oldest one and the youngest one. And uh, like I said, she, we were opposites. Um, while I was in Houston, my sister had called me and told me that she had slept with my ex. Yeah, which I had already moved on from him. Um, obviously, I was pregnant by somebody else. So, it, you know, I mean, it made me upset, but it didn't, like, make me so angry I wanted to go kick somebody's butt or anything like that. And by the time I got back home in, De- in January, it wasn't that big of an issue. It just made me be more on guard, you know what I mean? Trustworthy or whatever, but um, it wasn't really that big of a deal. But we had got into it. We had had an argument over something. I don't remember what it was. It must I know it wasn't nothing big because it didn't take much really to set her off. But I remember that it got heated, very heated, and she made the statement about, you're just pissed off because I slept with your ex, old man, and, you know, I come up, I'm pregnant, but I still come up off the, uh, my dad's bed, you know, we was fixing to get into it, and my um, dad jumped in front of us, and after that incident is when she left dad's house, and she moved in. Dad said that she was staying with uh, a couple na- uh friends of hers. Patricia is a former aircraft mechanic, which had to be the perfect job for her because she pays meticulous attention to detail. She's totally invested in pursuing Carrie's case, regardless of what people think of her. That's why I don't have a problem putting this description of her and Carrie getting into a huge fight right here at the beginning. I just hope you don't read too much into it. I put it here because it's important. It explains why Carrie wasn't staying at home with her kids when she disappeared. But I also think it's a really great way to show Patricia's black and white approach to this case, which sometimes gets her into trouble with people. She never said it in these terms, but it's clear after many conversations that she's pursuing answers about Carrie because Carrie is her sister, not because they loved being around each other. You're supposed to look for your missing sister, so that's what she's doing. More than any other person you're going to hear from, she's been the most committed to helping sort out what happened. It's so rare to have that sort of cooperation from someone so knowledgeable and dedicated. She's answered every call, message, and text about her family, and with brutal honesty, no matter how uncomfortable the question. She also forwarded me virtually every email related to this case. She even sent me her old cell phone in the mail when I asked to retrieve a file from it. She's been an open book, is my point. And really, the only people consistently willing to discuss any of this with me has been the Parker family. And I think that speaks of volumes. Because it hasn't been the case with many others you're going to hear from. Some spoke to me once and then disappeared. Actually, nearly everyone did that, if they agreed to speak to me at all. Even Carrie's friends and a couple relatives. One guy kicked me out of his house when I showed him a photo of Carrie. There's something about this case that unsettles people. 
Apparently, Carrie had went to my dad and told my dad that Cody wouldn't let her have her stuff out of that trailer house where they lived at on 429. And he and said her. that she had came to get some clothes. Because remember I told you that we that she had split, that she we had had that argument, and then she moved out or whatever? Well, she still had kids and clothes at Dad's house. So apparently before work, she had come to Dad's house and... Um, was all upset and told dad said i'm scared and sh and he said he wanted to know why or what have you and she said cause cody's digging a big hole out there on his family's property and uh oh dad said well maybe they're putting a um an additional septic tank out there or something other you know because they had the property was a um I guess it has several different buildings on it, and one of the buildings was like a trailer house where his mom and dad lived. The dates aren't entirely pinned down, but Carrie worked at a place called Flanders Precision Air. It was a filter factory in Terrell, Texas, a town in the next county over. Carrie worked the night shift there. That's where her family thinks she was heading on March 17, 1991, the last time any of them saw her. I'm not so convinced that's the last time she was seen by anyone, though. But that's what her family thought until recently that she went to her dad's house, the one on Waco Bay Loop, near where Glenn is living now, to pick up laundry. That He said that she had went on, had a basket in her arm, or had a basket of clothes or whatever. My nephew remembers this. He told me he remembered that that was the last time he saw his mama, and he described to me that the basket was pink. And that's the last time that dad and them saw her. And she was going to go do her laundry and then go to work. Do laundry at her old house? I don't know if she did laundry at the place where she was staying or if she took them to the washateria. Now, the laundromat also belonged to one of the guys that she hung around with, was good friends with, or whatever she did with him, you know. Mom owned that laundromat. So I'm assuming she may have done her clothes there. Um, I know that these people, most people in Quinlan don't have a whole lot of money, so they didn't really own a washing machine and dryer. Now, I'm, I'm just assuming. It just seems more feasible to me that she would probably go to the washateria. That was the only one in town. I do remember asking my grandfather, Where, where's my mom? And he would say, I don't know, for a while. And then um, as time went on, it was, she's missing. And so, it never registered, you know, like, because it's not like, oh, where well, there's an incident. And, and, and so, um, like, the, the closest thing to an incident to me was her walking out the door. Brian is Carrie's firstborn son, the one whose birthday party she didn't show up to in March 1991. He's the third and final family member to introduce right now, but we're going to talk to his sister a lot next time. We met in Wills Point, a town just next to Quinlan. Brian is 32, but he looks way younger until he starts talking, and it's clear how much experience has been packed into those years. He also comes across as one of those rare, instantly likable people. But we were both on our best behavior that day. I met Brian at his church, which is a big part of his life, and comes up in conversation a lot. He says it was only recently that he pulled himself together, and he credits that to the men at his church holding him accountable. He's also got two kids who come up in conversation a lot. In fact, he continuously brings them up whenever the conversation drifts to his own childhood. It's clear that he worries about how the past trauma is affecting them now. In 91, I was about to turn six, and on the 17th, I think is whenever she disappeared. And uh, I, remember, I remember her telling me that uh, 
she was planning a birthday party for me, but she was going to be gone for a few days, but she'll be back on my birthday and we'd celebrate it. And uh, I remember when she left, she walked out and she had a laundry basket on her hip as she was leaving. And uh, I remember crying and wanting to go to her and Papa was telling me, to, you know, just to it'd be all right, calm down and then just sit down and watch TV. He told me is that um, he knew the constable and that he had uh, sat in a truck with them and talked to the constable about her going missing and that he wanted to file a report. This is what my grandfather had told me. And so um, he said that one of the last conversations that he had had with her was that she said that Cody was digging a hole and it was too big for a septic and that she was nervous. Now, there's no more, no less that he, he said to that. So that just, you know, that tells me that, you know, she, I think she was in fear for her life for whatever reason uh, that may be. And that she knew that maybe he had done something like that before or had talked about it. And there, there, there had to be some reason that that fear was being put into her. The constable he's talking about is Cullen Smith, who was a sort of celebrity cop in Quinlan. Smith died unexpectedly nine years ago, after being repeatedly re-elected since 1980. Every Christmas, he would dress up as Santa to distribute gifts to the town's needier children. Smith was still doing the job at age 80 when he died in surgery, so I never got a chance to meet him. But he's a very important part of this story because he's one of the only law enforcement officers who seem to be taking the Parkers seriously. Later, we'll hear from his widow as well as his deputy, who took over briefly to finish the constable's term. Her last paycheck came to Dad's. Me and her went to uh, went to the DPS office together and got our driver's license renewed. And so hers came back. Um, I don't recall anybody ever calling to ask where she had went or if she was coming back to work. You know, things was different in 91. Her driver's license, her car registration, her... Um, last paycheck, and then I guess she was getting some sort of a electrical reimbursement okay. thing. I think it's for like low-income people that they get. Okay. And all of this stuff my dad kept for years. And then when he went to the nursing home and everybody helped themselves, I don't know what happened to everything. Patricia was pregnant and dealing with a custody battle when Carrie went missing, so she doesn't remember everything. But one thing she remembers for sure is what she did after a couple of months with no answers from Hunt County. So when um, when I hadn't heard anything for months or whatever, I, you know, I was like, man, we had to do something. And I know Dad had said that he had talked to his buddies or whatever. In Quinlan, um, the Hunt County folks, about her being missing. So I thought, well, you know what, if... If she was at last seen at work, because as far as I knew, that's where she was last seen, was at work. So that's why I went to Terrell, because that's where she worked at, to file the missing persons report. And when I, I know when I went in, I asked for a missing persons report. And back then, I had, I have it in my mind. I'm sitting at this desk, and I'm writing out everything by hand. But when I get the, the incident case report from Terrell, they had already transferred everything from back in the day, handwriting to computer. So I only get the computer version, and I have some <sighs> This is all correct, everything's correct. Um, 
This is the original incident report right here. She gave me a copy of the offense report. It's dated July 1991. I also filed a Public Information Act request to confirm it and received an identical copy. In the computerized system it's been converted to now, the report leaves out the handwritten portions, so I can't see exactly what Patricia wrote at the time. In the system, the offense is listed as non-criminal welfare check, but it includes a note indicating that it had been updated from an incident number 940808. It's not clear what this report was updating, and the Terrell PD has been less than eager to investigate. Either way, it's a matter of public record that at least one Parker was looking for Carrie back then. So, to recap, as far as the family knew in July 1991, Hunt County Constable Cullen Smith had handled the original report, and the Terrell Police Department was on top of the search for her there. In the meantime, Carrie's father investigated on his own, but that's where this story takes an even darker turn. My dad was really, he, my dad seemed to be more scared, I guess, rather than anything because for the kids, for himself. Ever, yeah. Um, so he never believed it's some accident. No, no. <clears throat> Everyone agrees that a couple of months after Carrie went missing, Howard Parker, that's her father, started acting worried. It's not clear exactly what happened or where the fear was coming from. But he started talking about these four men who he believed knew something or were involved in Carrie's disappearance. And he didn't waver on that for decades. Everyone in Carrie's immediate family knows those names. Two of them were in senior law enforcement positions, and three of them are alive today. We're going to talk about them carefully in upcoming episodes. One thing I'll share now is that I think some of the information was coming from Cullen Smith, the constable in Quinlan who was investigating Carrie's disappearance. Unfortunately, neither Howard nor Cullen are alive to ask. They both died in the last 10 years, and it's so frustrating to me that no one will ever know with certainty what these men believed, but I do think it's still possible to learn about what they discovered. He right near found out what was going on. He was getting pretty close to home, and they gave him a call and told him, you value the rest of your children's lives and your life, you best just drop it. You did? Pretty much, but right after that, I know he was telling the truth because he ended up buying three extra lots, burial lots, after the fact. Well, the way my dad talked, she was pretty nervous about something. She felt something was wrong. She wouldn't come right out. I don't think she told him everything because maybe she was in denial or whatever. She was hoping maybe it wasn't going to happen, but... I really don't know what all her and Daddy talked about, but apparently they talked about enough that Daddy was able to come up with quite a bit of information. But I think when he was threatened, that kind of put a halt to a lot of things. I mean, it must have scared him pretty bad to go buy three extra grave sites. I have records from the cemetery showing that Howard Parker really did buy the extra grave plots. He registered them a few years later, in 1997. One of Carrie's other children said that was easily explained. He had to wait until some sort of social security benefit kicked in. But everyone seems to believe the purchases were related to those threats. So, make of that what you will. Either way, the extra burial plots are real. But Brian wasn't clued in on any of this until way later. It was one of those things that we really didn't talk about much. You know, when I'm a kid and it happens, it's always, you know, what happened, well, where'd she go? And my grandfather just said, I don't know, she's missing. And so that's, that's what I was told for years uh, until I got older and um, I started asking more questions, which, you know, 
uh, it's always hearsay and that's that's hard because you have to put together the best reasoning uh, by everybody else's story and everybody's point of view is always different but my grandfather just always said we don't talk about it and just keep it to ourselves why i didn't know um i just kind of you know he was my grandfather so he's the one that, that as he got older and probably because he was the only boy howard started confiding in him more and more you know um when I was in my early 20s, uh, he lived with me for a little bit, and I started asking the more hard questions and the serious questions. And uh, one of them was, uh, why, why did we have to keep it to ourselves? And uh, he said because he used to get threatening phone calls and that he was trying to protect us. And um, whenever he told me that, I just, I, I understood a little bit more. But did he ever explain more about the nature of those calls? Or... Oh, he, uh, in a late, um, yeah, I, I asked him, I talked to him, I said, uh, well, what kind of calls were they? And he, he used to tell me that he'd get calls at two and three o'clock in the morning threatening him if he had said anything or went to anybody that it wouldn't just be him, it would be his three grandkids, which were us that lived at the house at the time. Did that just happen when when she first went missing when you were little, or did that continue happening like over years? He had told me once that he had gotten two or three phone calls, which had had warned him to stop investigating, stop uh, uh, looking into it, and things like that. And so, whenever I, I just assumed that he took the threat seriously and stopped, and that's the only that's the only logical rationality that I have from a first person story. So. Yeah. You would be hearsay, but for me, I heard it from my grandfather. Yeah. Most of the things that have been told to me have been told from my grandfather. I feel like he still tried to keep like his own uh, account of what may have happened. And so, but like I said, I went through years of teenage because this is this is my teenage years in my early twenties where I'm like, hey, like I need some answers. Like I'm pretty jacked up right now mentally, and it's it's it's. You know, coming out in other ways. Of course, I didn't know that then, but looking back, that's just, that's what was going on. Yeah. And so that's what I'm doing is I'm reaching for whatever it is that I can find for an explanation because it's done so much damage yeah. that um, I started hearing so many different stories that it was difficult to know what to believe and what not to believe. Personally, I didn't really know what to do. I didn't have a vehicle. I didn't have resources. None of my family came together and said, you know, ooh, where's she at? You know, you've mm -hmm. got to do something. Or uh, My family has never been a close-knit family. Mm -hmm. And even now, I'm kind of estranged. I mean, but, well, not only that, but I'm going to be quite honest with you. Um, a part of my, well, a part of our cap uh, coping capabilities or mechanisms is to just, been to just shut it out, mm -hmm. you know, like it never happened or whatever that's you know you keep yourself busy you don't think about it you know those sorts of things um but for a long time um i was I, I hate to say this but it didn't really bother me a whole whole lot that carrie was gone because of what she had did to me right. with my ex-husband yeah um oh, that was your ex, sir. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um I didn't really do anything. I called the FBI. FBI told me, and this was in, and it was, this was in the 90s, probably around 96, 97 maybe. I called and, um, look, man, something's going on because we hadn't heard from her since 91. Her and her car is gone. Well, there's no evidence of foul play. 
So, okay, that door shut. It's kind of hard in the beginning to um, really get it to sink in that they're not yeah. coming back or, you know, something must have really happened to them. And you know what? I don't think it really hit me until I had um, called the Tarot Police Department. And then that's when I got all the explanations here on how it all works as yeah. far as someone going missing and it's missing from where they live. I have copies of these emails. In May 2010, Chief of Police Jody Lay responded to Patricia's request for updates. And even though it's not about my family, I still get that sinking feeling in my stomach whenever I come across his reply in my files. Quote, It appears the missing person's case falls in the Greenville Police Department. Unless an eyeball witness observed an abduction in Terrell, the person is always considered missing from their place of residence, not the place they were last known to have been. It appears the Terrell PD conducted a follow-up on the last reported sighting here in Terrell and did not turn up any leads. If Greenville PD never investigated beyond that point, that is something they would need to explain. The email closes with this less-than-optimistic note. If your sister was living the lifestyle you referred to in your email, there is no telling what occurred. It's not clear why the police in Terrell thought Greenville PD would have been responsible. Carrie didn't live in Greenville, although it's kind of close to Quinlan. The Hunt County Sheriff's Office is based there, though. And according to a retired chief of police from back then, Carrie's address was under the jurisdiction of the sheriff's office. That's who Cullen Smith would have notified at the time if things went the way they were supposed to go. So that's where Patricia went next, after finding out about Terrell. To confirm the missing persons report was at least filed there. Something just kept bothering me. I, not, I, was, I was an aircraft mechanic for quite a few years, and... Um, then I ended up managing having the aircraft worked on for Customs Border Patrol. Well, every certain amount of years, the contract comes back up for rebidding for another company. Mm -hmm. Turns out Lockheed Martin got the contract, so it ended here in Waco for me. I got laid off, but and that was in, I think that was in, it was 2010. I had started, something kept bugging me. I don't know why, but it's like, Carrie kept coming back to me, you know, coming back to me, and, and you know, it kind of just bothered me. Sure. So I contacted them, and you seen the email that I got from uh, Chief Lay, and describing, well, you know, they got to go missing from where they lived and all that yeah, kind of yeah. junk. So that's, I'm like, that's in terror, right? yes, yeah. that's what that is right there. That was interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that, if it is true. So... I thought, well, damn, if the if my missing person's turned into a welfare check, then I wonder if it even got filed in Hunt County. So when I found out that the there was no uh, missing person filed in Terrell that I had asked for, I called Brandy, which is Carrie, you know, Carrie's middle daughter. Yes. And before I even barely got off the phone, Brandy had already called Hunt County and filed this report of her missing. And then she wasn't listed in NCIC. She wasn't missing in, or she wasn't missing nowhere. It was like, how the hell does that, how does a person disappear for this long and nobody ask any questions, nobody say anything, nobody does nothing?
it did. It drove me crazy for a long time. And I mean, I like, cause it, I wore my heart on my sleeve for years and, 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 uh, anyone that would befriend me or I'd talk to do counselors from all from off the third grade, all the way through high school, you know, private counselors, you know, going to the MHMR and, and talking. I'm pretty sure I exhausted a lot of people just, you know, saying, well, what if, and what if this, and what about this? And I was told this and somebody's got to help and, yeah. and nothing ever, nothing ever happened. It's hard to overstate the impact that a mom's disappearance would have on a six-year-old. Brian told me about talking to counselors at school at every grade level and the years of agonizing, unanswered questions. He also told me about how eventually, after having his own kids, he had to choose being fully there as a parent over the search for his mom. I heard this over and over again from different family members, how they worried about the impact on their kids and the painful choices that followed. And so I have no issues talking about it and like it doesn't bring up a lot. Of, but um, there are things that I've gone through that, you know, um, that have it's affected me deeply in my family. And and I mean, while while my kids have good lives and they're great, wonderful kids, there's still like part of those insecurities and vulnerabilities. I think uh, what it is is, you know, whenever you're a teenager and you're alone in your room, you're crying and you're like, what the heck is going on? What do I do with my life? And you have no sense of direction. It really messes with your head. And when you take that all the way through to your adulthood and then you have kids and and you don't want it to affect them, it's just it, it, there had to be a point where I had to say, OK, well, enough is enough. And I have to put this behind me, not for my sake anymore, but for for my kids sake, for their future. Yeah. The, 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 the only thing that I know, it, like in my heart, the only way that I've been able to rationalize is that she made bad decisions. She's uh, dead and I'm probably never going to have the answers and I need to do my best to make peace with that. And everything else is semantics. More or less, that's the stance each family member has taken at different times. And it's hard to blame them after everything that's happened. Carrie's fears of a fate she never got the chance to explain. Terrifying phone calls in the middle of the night. Threats against three small children. And two missing persons reports that went nowhere. Years passed. All three of Carrie's children grew up without a mom. Both of Carrie's parents died without ever finding answers. And the lot where they all grew up is overgrown. Her sisters moved to different parts of the state. Most of the family doesn't even talk to each other anymore. But Glenn stayed behind in Carrie's world of drugs and crime and the people she knew. Life moved on without answers for him, too. Until one day, only a couple of years ago, when a woman he recognized asked for a ride. She used to hang around Carrie and Cody back in the day. And I didn't never know her real well. I'd seen her from time to time. She got in his truck, and the two set off down the road. Glenn didn't think she recognized him. And the subject of Carrie Mae Parker came up. And we were talking about Carrie, and I don't think she really realized that I was Carrie's brother, that maybe I was a friend. She was close to Carrie in the 90s and still moves around the drug scene to this day, when she's not in prison. But I'd give her a ride and say, do you want to know where Carrie Parker is? I said, yes. She said, turn down 34, turn down 34, said, go past the police station, went past the police station. They were on the north side of the road, driving east. Past the cop station, keep going. We kept going. As they drove, the woman focused her attention on an almost featureless lot. 
The only thing that stands out is a mound of dirt piled high, maybe a hundred yards from the road. And off to the side of that, there's an indention in the ground, but you have to be looking for it. Then she asked Glenn to slow down. She leaned over me, I was driving. She leaned over me, she's right there. She didn't say maybe or I think. She pointed over my over me and said she's right there. is produced by Emma Anderson and me. Its executive producer is Jared Knight. Theme music is composed by Brad Davis. Photography is by Brittany Greider. Cover art is by Crystal Sid. Special thanks to Jacqueline Smelly, Karen H., and Scott G. Thanks also to the Quinlan Public Library and the Stone Point Church in Wills Point, Texas. Buried is a production of member-supported 88.9 KETR-FM in Commerce, Texas. To support this and other programming, go to KETR.org. show and others like it from KETR.org are made possible by generous contributions from listeners just like you. Donate today at KETR.org.